Talk to me, Joey. Oh, still up a yard. good very good thank you good good i'm ryan and what i'm going to be doing is basically helping these boys get their podcast up and running because they're caddies basically i'm not going to make jokes that, that that'll be one of the last jokes i make about them but we're making them uh, a podcast that's going to be every week and with the situation at the moment or oh, they have nothing to do so we're going to start us off, nail it, and when these boys get back out on tour, they're going to run with it themselves. I'm going to be speaking with caddies every week, all different types of caddies, giving you kind of insight from across the tour. So today, I'm with Ollie and Gus. You boys started caddying at the same time, didn't you, Ollie? Um, yeah, roughly around the same time. I mean, on tour, this is. I mean, Gus has been caddying since he was... 16 at St Andrews but yeah we met each other um it would have been 2014 2015 at a challenge tour event in Italy isn't that right Gus yeah that's right I remember it well we met at um the airport and uh stayed together that week didn't we um yeah I was working for Ollie Farr who were you working for uh I was working for a French guy called Thomas Linard I remember um, the comments, yeah. The crazy Frenchman. Great guy. Yeah. So, so what interests me is how you even, and we get asked this question since we've started up the kind of the talk caddies thing, is is how you even get into that. Because it's such, to me as an outsider, it's such a kind of uh, a bizarre job. Um, and like, it's not something you need to go down the, you know, you see on the job site or something, like to how you, how you get into it. So I guess... Ollie first. I mean, how how did you get into it? Um, it was through a friend that got me into it. I was working in the city um, in Manchester, which is the city where I come from. Um, and I was working for a big development company doing like urban planning and heritage planning and stuff like that. And uh, the golf course that I used to be a member at, Slaley Hall, was hosting the British Seniors PGA. And a friend of mine worked for for the PGA and asked if I wanted to take a week off and uh, go and caddy. So I ended up doing that, taking a week's holiday from my real job and caddied for Eamon Darcy, uh, which was a nice surprise, Ryder Cup hero. And then from there, um, enjoyed it, did a few more events for him that summer, did the seniors open at Turnbury and then kind of realised this is kind of what I wanted to do. Uh, left my real job, moved to Australia did some club caddying there, did a bit of work on the Asian tour, which is where I met Terry Pilkadaris, who is one of my first ever bags legend. And then uh, just naturally came back to Europe to start Challenge Tour and uh, the rest is history. And Gus? Uh, so I basically started quite randomly as well. I was uh, I just finished high school and... Um, I was actually in Australia visiting my dad um, and my mum sent me a message saying they're looking for some caddies at St Andrews uh, for the summer if you fancy a part-time job. So went along, uh, got the job there, uh, kind of just really enjoyed the job in the first place. I mean, it was great making cash in hand at, at that age. Um, 
and then sort of just over the years realized that it was a it was an actual career to be made out of it um on the professional tours so just tried to make my way up the up the ladder really doing uh and started with Lynx trophies the amateur event at st andrews and british amateurs with some guys had uh, did a couple of downhill links events that they have at uh, st andrews obviously of course um and then yeah just ended up getting a, an opportunity with uh, carly booth on the on the let and so started up with her and then uh, just through sort of word of mouth and stuff ended up getting a job on challenge tour six months on there and then onto the main tour and yes yeah, six seven this is my seventh year now so yeah that's basically how it all started and how i've ended up where i am now yeah, so I mean, for both of you, it's kind of six years to get to the main tour. And uh, so to explain, so Ollie, you're caddying at the moment for Nikolai Hogard. I, I, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, Danish kid. Prodigy, would we call him? You could do, yeah. He's uh, he's going to be special. He already is special and uh, it's going to take a little bit of time to find his way and get himself on the main tour. He's got a status this year which means that he's playing challenge tour and because he got enough points last year he'll get in some of the smaller european tour events so that'll uh that'll get him some starts on main tour but mainly that's uh down on challenge tour is where he's trying to apply his trade and, and previously for the last what would you was it three or three years before that you were with alex bjork yeah swedish guy yeah so he's had a, a really good few years he came on to tour yeah, it'd be three years ago to the day, really. And then um, I managed to jump on that bag, and he just had an unbelievable two years um, from that point, and then was able to uh, to do well, just to do really well, play all over the world, and and do some really good things. So you've caddied a couple. You've caddied a couple of majors. You've had a win, haven't you? Yeah, one in China. Uh, the second second year I worked for him, and we've been to America. I've uh, done a couple of US PGAs, did three Opens, a couple of WGCs in there and uh, things like the World Cup, which was actually done nicely with uh, Gus. Yeah, and Gus, I, uh, so Gus, you're with Joachim Lagergren. Once again, I've pronounced that kind of right. You're pretty good, yeah. Yeah, people get it a lot worse. <laughs> and how long have you been with him? Uh, around three and a half years with Joachim now, yeah. Okay, and once again, kind of a young player, kind of up and coming, um, with a lot of potential, would you say? Yeah, I mean, he's probably a lot older than people think because he, he looks so young, but he's uh, he's still 28, so very young in, in the golf game, obviously. Um, kind of a player uh, everyone thinks is, uh, I don't know, at some point going to be a superstar. I, I think that as well. He's a very talented player. Um just needs to get get something going but he's won on the tour we won in 2018 in Sicily so he can definitely get it done um just needs to get in the position a few more times yes yeah, so, so I kind of think uh, what I think was interesting about starting this podcast with you two guys is you kind of you've seen well you've seen all the different levels almost and I think a lot of guys a lot of people from outside of golf or outside the kind of tour would would they know the top couple of the caddies that caddying for you know your Rose, your uh, Rose Westwood, um, Rory, and everyone? Um, and they kind of see that life as 
the whole you get this percentage of this big check every week and they kind of see that life whereas I, I, that's not the true case for the majority of the caddies is it ollie um no no that's the top echelons um everybody knows the people like finno big characters like that and uh you know wee man that's worked for kaima for years uh billy foster you know the legends um they've obviously they have it great. They've worked very hard to get there. Don't get me wrong. And they've definitely been through the leaner times. And, you know, when you start out in this gig, um, if you did what me and Gus did, which is start on Challenge Tour, you know, your percentage checks every week, you know, and, and not very much. Um, hopefully you're just praying to get some, you know, top tens in there to give you a little bit of cash to try and, you know, float the dream, if you will. And then it's not really until you make it out on the main tour on the main European tour, that is, that um, that you can actually start to make some cash doing this job. And even then, you're really praying for your player to make those final three final three tournaments of the year, you know, your Turkey, Ned Bank and Dubai final, because those are where you make your well, Christmas bonus, essentially. Yeah, so just for kind of people that don't know how a caddy is generally paid, I'm sure it's different in, to some degrees, but generally, ha, you guys are self-employed and you'll take a percentage on prize winnings. How does it kind of work? Um, so basically, well, I'd say for the majority of caddies, certainly on the European tour, um, you're on a, a weekly wage, which basically means the, the weeks that you work tournaments, you, you earn a wage um, from that you get paid from your golfer. Uh, if the um, tournament is outside of Europe. Generally, most players pay for half of your flights, uh, and then you work on a percentage of um, the prize money after that. So, again, only making prize money if the player is making the cut. Obviously, there's no prize money for for missing the cuts. So, um, and then generally, people have set limits for if they finish in the top ten, there's a certain percentage or wins the top a uh, different percentage, and so on and so forth. So. I would say in general that's that's how we get paid. And and I'm sure I'm sure in general, but not even without without going too deep into the numbers, you're kind of, uh, and I'm sure it's different for everyone. Um, but your kind of weekly wage is pretty much covering costs. Would you say? Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, if your player is not making any money, then I would say you would really have to be scrimping and saving um staying in you know really cheap hotels uh eating you know average food that kind of thing to, yeah. to make any money out of your actual weekly wage and kind of that that that, that kind of tour life once again of, of uh and it's like this for lots of the players as well i'm sure uh, is that kind of tour life from airport to hotel airport to hotel um you you, you, you guys are all kind of bunking in together and uh, things like that, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. Gus has shed some light. I mean, our wage does cover the expenses. And by by poor hotels, he generally does mean flea pits. I mean, we're all, you know, we essentially are travel agents for ourselves. And we really know how to get around the world, how to do it in an efficient and economical way. And... Um, yeah, the players are the same as well, especially when they're first starting out. Obviously, sponsorship money is not exactly forthcoming in masses, is it? And uh, it's it's easy to quickly spend money on hotels that are very expensive or going out for fine food. And when when Gus talks about uh, you know scrimping and saving, you really are talking about uh, 
your beans on toast in a shared, you know, almost like a backpackers or a hostel kind of thing. And that's not the best place to be when you've got a 4.30 a.m. alarm to get to work the next day for the next 12 hours in 30 degrees of heat or something. So it is, um, yeah, it can be very difficult when you first start out. And that's why it's important to try and develop to develop yourself properly and uh, stick around as long as you can because the, the longer you stay out, the uh, more chances you have of getting onto something that's uh, actually worthwhile being out there for. And, and, and I think, um, yeah, that, that is the reality. But I, I guess it, it, so what strikes me is it's a, bit of a, it's, it's a bit of a crazy job where there's the potential for big highs and big lows, not just financially, but you can be in kind of big moment in sport, which is, I guess, is the kind of buzz that you're uh, in for. It'd be cool to kind of understand, because you both had a win, right? It'd be cool to kind of understand what actually happened in that win can you kind of take me through it like because i see it on tv but like you can kind of you can kind of not feel the pressure you can you can't really but when you're actually in there in that moment uh what's that like you can go first Uh, you were in a playoff weren't you yeah um yeah so we were we had a tough battle on the sunday um where there was kind of uh, Joachim, Lorenzo Vera and uh, Andy Sullivan all kind of jostling for the lead uh, very windy conditions you know it was a real pars are good day uh, and then we uh, the, the most nervy moment probably for me was the, the tee shot in 18 in regulation where uh, all the way down the side is, is basically is the ocean you know a cliff in the ocean so uh, his tee shot started off um, way right of where it should have been so kind of heart in the mouth as soon as that takes off you know fortunately enough it was four or five meters in bounds there made a good par and then and then you're in a playoff so you, you kind of don't have a huge amount of time to to react at that point you're just going you you want to get you want to get the job done you want to get it won as quickly as possible um so we were back to the 18th tee with lorenzo vera um we hit a decent tee shot. He hits one a little left in the rough. Um, and, you know, we were, I, I think, in that moment, I reckon I, I spoke about 10, 10 words to Joachim. Basically, gave him gave him the number, um, gave him where the wind was. He grabbed the five iron out, and I knew it was a perfect club, so I didn't need to say a word. So that's all that was said. He stood up first, hit it to about six feet, um, Lorenzo Vera hit it over the back of the green, got a bit of a flyer. Yolkan uh, walks up. I mean, at, at this moment, you're surrounded by your your peers. You see friends in the crowd. It's a, it's a really really special feeling, and you're just hoping your man uh, can finish the job. Uh, fortunately, he did, um, and it was yeah, just relief. You know, to to get a win on this tour is is a huge relief. It really. I think stands you in good stead for the future. Um, shows other players, other caddies that you can uh, can get the job done as well. Uh, so yeah, it's a, just a special feeling and moment I'll never forget for sure. Yeah, it's it's yeah. It sounds like it, it just it's just bizarre, just so different to like a regular you know office job or what have you. Um, what what like. I guess they say the same for players. It's kind of uncharted territory. You mentioned you kind of. Uh, 
just stayed quiet and well and you knew you, you were confident you could stay quiet and just deliver what you uh you know the yardage and the wind or yes so I'm, I'm going am i doing the right thing here what was the, what was kind of your thought process or so i'm i'm very much in the in the way of thinking that i try and caddy exactly the same no matter where we are in the tournament what um what position we are, what moment we're in, so that my man knows that he can rely on me to, to, you know, you know, it doesn't matter if we're in a pressure pressure situation like that to win a tournament, that he can trust that me not having to say too much, you know, that's a good thing for him. It means it's an easy decision. We don't have to overthink it. We don't have to overplay it. Um, don't get me wrong. There's times where you have to discuss shots a little bit more, um, but for for Joachim certainly is a very quick player. Um, you know, we generally, it's one of two clubs and it, it doesn't take too long to make a decision usually. And uh, I didn't think it, in that moment, you know, we should do anything different. Um, just try and do your job exactly the same. That way, uh, your man kind of knows that, that he can trust you. Yeah, uh, and I, I want to move on to times because obviously you got it right that time. I want to go on to times you got it wrong, but we'll go back. We'll go uh, to give you boys your kind of share of the limelight. We'll go to uh, Ollie's uh, Ollie's win, I guess. Would that be a kind of a, the biggest pressure moment you've been in, Ollie? Or uh, no, it wasn't actually. It's ours was quite fittingly completely different to Gus's. Okay, um, so we were in China. And scoring was quite low, course was very good, running fast. And it was maybe about five or six players ready to compete on the Sunday on the back nine. Um, and it ended up being between Bjork, Etegi and Wallace, who had all had really good starts to the year. Wallace has obviously really kicked on uh, to bigger and better things. And um, it was really just a case of who could post the lowest score um, with Wallace and Ategi in the final group, I believe. And um, Alex had an absolutely storming back nine, um, holding a nice birdie put on the last. Um, and then we posted the score and sat in, sat in what is a big tent. Uh, it's a scorer's hut where all the statistics are, where the television interviews are conducted. And we had to sit there and watch the final groups come in, having posted, posted the score for the guys to beat. And, um, yeah, you were absolutely powerless. You couldn't do anything. We'd, we'd done the job. Alex had done his bit. He'd, um, he'd played exceptional. He couldn't have done any better on the back nine. And, um, yeah, we just had to wait for it to unfold, which was really strange because your friends are on the bags of the other guys that are coming in. So, obviously, you're trying to egg them on and want them to do well. But, obviously, you want your own uh, piece of the cake. Um, and it just transpired that I think Ategi three-footed 17 from nowhere and Wallace didn't get up and down or didn't hole, hole an eagle chip or something from just over the green. I remember watching that chip, remembering it was really pivotal. And, um, and that, that him missing that chip, I believe, won Alex the tournament, which was great. Um, but to go into the individual points on the back nine, like Gus has described, it was more just a regulation round for us and everything just kind of came together. So there was no real pressure except for on the 18th green, uh, Alex had tried to hit the par five in two, didn't quite get it on the green. I think it was green side and the rough or something and hit a, a semi-decent pitch to about eight foot, a little horrible left to right or down the hill, the puts that everyone at home will hate. 
and managed to just drop it in the front edge, which was amazing. I thought at that point then that could have won us the tournament, but it was all about all came down to the eight footer. But there was that was only really the only bit of pressure that we had. And obviously, I'm not giving him advice over wind and numbers on a putt. It's all his feel. Um, so it was a little bit different there. And then quite weirdly as well, everyone had kind of gone home because uh, we're in Beijing about two hours from the airport. Most of the golfers that day and the caddies had got on buses already to go back to the airport to catch the evening flights to come back to Europe for next week's tournament. So it was only kind of left with about 10 or 15 people and the whole tournament staff at this tournament behind the scenes. So we kind of won. I went and packed the bag, had a shower, got dressed. Then we got on a bus, went to the airport, and I got on a plane and flew home to Manchester. Very, very strange. Completely different to Gus, who had a lot more people around watching this playoff. And it was exciting. It's very strange, very surreal. I think that's I, from speaking to players and I guess you guys as well. After a win or after any result, quite often the the reality of tour life is that you're you're just doing the same thing anyway. You're getting the um, you're getting the flight wherever you're going next and getting there, and you don't really have time to you know I don't know take it in almost. Would you say that's true, Gus? Uh, yes and no. I mean, don't get me wrong. That you know. I, I had a drive, um, an hour and a half drive with another friend of ours, Rich Hanna, to another airport in Sicily. Um, had a couple of beers on the way. Uh, but don't get me wrong, like, although you might be going on to... I actually had a week off the next week, but it's... it's what something... was that? <laughs> Pardon? What was that week like? Well, it didn't start great because I missed my flight. Um from Sicily to Geneva at the time where I was living. Uh, so I missed my flight in the morning by falling asleep at the airport. So I made it through. I was at the gate, or at what I thought was the gate, uh, fell asleep, woke up, um, noticed that it was a bit emptier, um, and I'd missed my flight by sitting at the airport. So the week didn't start great. Um, but then, yeah, got home and just celebrated with uh, my girlfriend, Kira, and uh, then... I was back in Scotland not long after that, so managed to celebrate with friends and family back there as well. So uh, it's, it's a bit of a tradition, isn't it? So with amongst the caddies, I want to kind of get onto this kind of thing. Uh, amongst the caddies is if you win, you're yeah. getting the beers in on a Monday night. Is is that is that true? Is it a Monday or what? What's the situation? Yeah, I guess wherever wherever you can, if Monday suits best. Um, could be the could be that night, could be the Sunday night. You know, quite often we're staying on on Sunday night and flying on a Monday. So uh, Sunday night's always a good one. Then Monday, and then then you've always got to think about where it's always good to win, but sometimes it's not great. Like our friend Josh won um, the Czech Masters, and then the the following week was Cran uh, Montana in Switzerland, which is around eight pounds a pint, something around there. So. <laughs> He, he won one of the smallest checks on tour and then had to buy one of the biggest rounds on tour, but fair play to him for doing it. <laughs> and what, and what, like, what's, what, what's the kind of code for the caddies that kind of hide away when after they've won an event? <laughs> well, uh, well I yeah, I mean, that. it's not really a code. It's just the tight ones are known as the tight ones, like in any walk of life. But the majority of people look after their close circle of friends. I mean, obviously, there's a hundred and... 50, 160 of us at any one time and you've got your little social circles that you knock about in um, so 
I wouldn't necessarily expect, say, one of the Spanish caddies won in Qatar the other week. I wouldn't necessarily expect him to go and buy me a drink, but I'd, I'd hope he bought all the boys a couple of glasses of wine in the airport before they flew out. You know that. You know what I mean there? It's uh, not necessarily a blanket purchase for everyone, but you kind of look after your social your social circle and the people that you room and travel with. Yeah, I, I, I kind of... Uh, I, it kind of leads me on nicely, actually, to kind of you guys sticking together. And you, you mentioned how you're talking about your mates carrying bags and coming up even when they're in contention with you and you kind of wish them well but then obviously you're competing with them and it's money at the end of the day and uh and your career but I guess this leads us on nicely to what we're what you're kind of doing with this where the caddy so the this this is the tour caddies which is the media brand that we've created um which has come off the back of the ETCA which is the um caddy association right so which all the caddies come together, which can now commercialise, um, which is which was legislated very recently, right? And um, all the caddies come together, and we can basically stick some money in all the caddies' pockets um, with hat deals and whatever it might be, and that can really make a difference to the caddies at the end of the year because it's a, going right across the board, right, Ollie? Yeah, correct. Yeah, so essentially. We're just looking for new commercial um, commercial partners, I suppose you could put, just to just to try and help. As we touched on at the start of the recording here, um, you know, not everyone's making hundreds of thousands of pounds a year and flying on private jets. The majority of us are sticking together and traveling together to make it cheaper, you know, hiring cars together, you know, hiring the odd house together in the sticks so that you're keeping costs down. You know, we go to expensive countries like Gus has just said in Switzerland. I mean, you try and get a hotel up the mountain that week, you'd be paying thousands of pounds each for your hotel room. And, you know, your wage is nowhere near that level. So you're, you're going to be losing money before you go to work if you're not careful with this. Um, so the whole concept of us sticking together uh, in our small little groups then makes it easier for us, a big group, to uh, try and generate revenue for, for members they were, you know, they're out here working their hardest. You know, they're just maybe looking for that quick break. And if we can top up their, you know, their annual income to help Christmas be a little bit easier or, you know, allow the pressure to be taken off their spouse or partner at home that's working hard whilst they're away on tour. And, you know, if you go away for a four week stretch and you play Mrs. Four Cuts in a row, you're not exactly bringing home hundreds and thousands of pounds uh, into the family kitty. So it's nice to try and get something done for the members so that at Christmas they know that they can have X amount of cash put on that dining room table to help pay for everything over those festive periods. Yeah, I think the key the key is as well, I think Gus has met, Gus mentioned it on a video he did the other day, especially with what's going on at the moment, the key is that you guys aren't kind of, I, I don't think you guys are kind of moaning going, oh, we don't get paid well or what have you. It's just you have, you're on, you're on TV a lot and you're not being paid for it like everyone else, you know? It's pretty pretty simple stuff, right? Yeah, it's um, it's not exactly... Yeah, you hit the nail on the head again. It, you know, we're definitely not moaning. We, you can earn quite nice money doing this job, and it, well, it can take a long time to get there. It's just making sure that, you know, that, that, that we are taking full advantage of our um, image on the television. And, of course, it's all about the players. It's all about the tour the tour sponsors and the players' sponsors, but we have a small subsidiary of this. That's why we've done really well to work with the tour and the tour operations department to make sure that we can get a small piece of this pie 
and help generate a little bit more activity for the tour on social media. Because uh, at the end of the day, any 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 coverage is great coverage. So even things like this podcast and just talking about it, getting people realizing that this is now happening. And next time they see a hat on a caddy's head and it has a brand on it, they can go, oh, well, if I work for this big corporation or a small company even, that could be my brand on there. And the benefits that come from that are obviously you know, ever-changing and as, as wide as they want to be. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it, it's very interesting. I'm, I'm kind of conscious we're talking quite seriously, which whenever I've chatted to you hasn't been that you guys hasn't really been the case. So yeah. I'm interested in kind of, uh, you, you boys meant, you boys literally played as a team, right? So what, when was that? And that was, was that the World Cup of golf, uh, Gus? Uh, yeah, so we've, had three team events together now we've done um the golf sixes which is a european tour event twice um once in Kashkai and uh, the other time in england where was it in england Ollie? the centurion club, centurion uh, club. Watford, yeah, yeah. uh and then we did the um world cup in uh, at the Metropolitan Golf Course in uh, Melbourne, which was uh, an awesome experience, both with um, uh, um, Ollie working for Alex Bjork and, and me with Joachim. So uh, obviously really good fun to be paired with uh, one of your good friends on tour. Um, and yeah, some interesting interesting moments had as well. Some t- team golf always uh, brings up something different and it's uh, nice to be involved in that as well. I swear you told me a story about looking over at someone hitting a bad shot or a good shot. I can't remember what it was. Do you know what I'm talking about? Or, or maybe I've just heard this in the pub and I'm, I don't know. From the no, world. Go on, sorry, Gus, you go. So, you know, we, we, we were playing um, foursomes. Uh, so basically... I, we've had in the in the first round of, of the golf sixes um, we've hit a shot um, down a par four which was absolutely fine at the time um, and what was it Alex has hit this Alex has hit one more club Ollie what happened exactly so basically we're at the sixes <clears throat> and myself and Gus working for the Swedes and um, in the morning it was a bit cooler the wind was not up there's a par four where driver runs through the fairway for every player so um alex being the shorter and straighter player goes first and he just hits a nice three wood down there it goes about 25 30 yards short from the end of the fairway uh Jokic stands up three wood potentially um three wood potentially runs through the fairway but Jokic hits it anyway because alex is in play so he pumps a three wood down there and we get down there and Joachim's about three or four yards from the end of the fairway. So Alex plays. So Alex has played the second shot. Anyway, we get to the next match. It's about two hours later. It's warmer. The wind has picked up. We're by the coast. So me and Gus get on the tee. And, you know, as caddies in a team event, you kind of discuss what each other's player can hit it to and what that's going to leave. So we have a good idea when we're walking in between the green to the next tee, what our players would like to see from the next shot. So, uh, you know, Gus turns to me and says, well, well your boy can hit three wood down here. There's definitely not 20, 25 uh, yards in this wind. I agree completely. Joachim then has to peel back and hit five wood, which is like a trusty club for him. So 
We get on the tee, and I think actually Jochen went first because he was hitting less of a club. So he just went there, pegged his five wood, sent it down there. Alex then takes rescue out of the bag. And I walk over to Alex and go, hang on, mate, you can hit three wood here. To which he goes, no, I can't. I nearly ran out of fairway this morning. That's where I hit my second shot from. So me and Gus then look at each other. And Gus doesn't really say much on a golf course. He's a man of few words, but a man of good words. And he has a little smile from the corner of his mouth. And he knows what's about to unfold, which is basically Alex forgets the format that we're playing. And he doesn't, re- doesn't recognise that the ball he played in the morning was actually Joachim's drive. And his three-wood, as I've said earlier, was way short at the end of the fairway. So he can still hit three-wood because he's got that room to manoeuvre it in. And he wasn't having any of it from me. None of it. He was telling me, go away, Ollie. You don't know what you're doing. Go away. So then Gus, as I said, as a man of few words, turns around and says to Alex, you can hit your three-wood. And, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, you know, for, for another caddy to say to another player that's a little bit weird in the first place because it's none of Gus's business essentially and again Alex was not having any of it and I just remember the point where Joachim intercepts and starts talking to Alex in Swedish so that's when you know they're serious because the Swedish (laughs) speak English so for for Joachim to turn around and they call a three word a spoon in uh, Sweden and all I heard was effing spoon or something (laughs) <laughs> and uh, anyway, so Bjork swings it out of his shadow, tries to kill the golf ball, hits it down there. As soon as the ball goes in the air, he's effing and blinding. I knew this is too much club. This is ridiculous. You guys aren't letting me play my game. And we get down there and the ball's four or five yards short at the end of the fairway. Joachim's got a perfect number, stiffs it in close, makes a birdie. And I mean, that was, yeah, that was just a, a, a point there of how the team game can make it quite funny, but also how stubborn these guys can be as well. <laughs> it must be weird actually that uh, you're not because normally it's just you right and if the player does that it's kind of up to you to, whereas if you've got, almost got a bit of backup if you've got another player and another caddy right yeah I think um, Ollie would tell you this himself that there was a lot of times where he would have liked a, a bit of backup when working for Alex <laughs> just, to, <laughs> just to get his point across yeah some players are different um some players take in information very easily and other players are, as you say, very headstrong and um, sometimes hard to get your point across to them quite as, as easily. Talk to us, Ollie. I want to hear, I want to hear what, what that was like. Uh, well, it's, look, it's, it's, first of all, it's part of the reason why these guys are so good is because they're in their little world and they're getting their like robotic routine when they're under the pump and performing well. So, you have to understand this is why the guys are so good in the first place is because nothing, nothing puts them off. You know, the concentration is their concentration. And we all know the phrase being in the zone. So Alex is very good mental, mentally. And you knew that once he got in that zone and he could see the finish line and compete, you know, we had that great year where he had so many top tens. I knew that he was going to be onto it. But obviously with conditions changing as they do in golf and the scenarios changing, Sometimes you need to throw a, you know, throw a little curveball in there and remind him that, you know, if you leave this shot there, it's not the end of the world or the wind isn't quite where you think it is, you know, just in terms of the holes running alongside each other. And on a few occasions, you know, when we're in these positions, Alex would uh, not exactly be on the ball with this. So it would be, be quite interesting for our playing partners to, uh, to watch me and him have little tiffles when talking about what to do with a shot. Uh, and it, what, it strikes me like that 
you'd have to kind of taper, is that the right word? Taper your caddying towards a different player, different personalities, different ways of playing the game. and or absolutely, Yeah, absolutely. So I've been quite lucky. When I worked for Terry, as I touched on earlier, Terry's obviously the, the journeyman of golf. And uh, he knows what he's doing. He just needs quality advice at the right time. And he's got it, it scripted. So you know when to talk, when not to. And that really helps you when you go and work for other players. And I've worked for players where I've had to do nearly everything for them, and including tell them what kind of shot to hit. Whereas you get more of a, a strong player, like I would say Alex is. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he wants to do. And, you know, as I've said, that makes them really good. And it makes them really good under pressure. But at the same time, if the circumstances change suddenly, wind switches, you know, temperature drops, temperature goes up, the lie of the ball might not be great and the condition might be firm and you need to hit it short the green. Because sometimes trying to hit it on the green is impossible. You need to, if you're in the rough and it's going to fly and the greens are firm, you sometimes need to play to the best area. And trying to get this into this guy's head when he was full steam ahead, full concentration and full focus was sometimes very difficult. And that's where you need to change how you approach certain things. And, you know, like I've said, sometimes you'll just tell a player what to do and he'll listen. Um, and then sometimes you need to try and coerce a player into not doing it. So Alex wouldn't never really be told and I'm quite forward and stubborn. So it was quite a good clash of personalities, really. And you couldn't really tell Alex what to do. But you would had to try and say, look, if you leave it here, that's not a bad place to be. Whereas if you go for this and miss, you don't want to be here. So you're putting that seed of doubt into his head to try and make your point come across. And that's, the that's I would say, and you speak to the elders and the more experienced caddies, that is, in, a, in essence, the art of caddying is trying to negotiate your language around the player's personality to try and get them to do what you feel is right, what they know is right. But at the end of the day, if they're chasing a win down and you're telling your player to aim away from a pin, they're not going to be happy. Right, they're going to get very frustrated, but it's how you deal with that frustration with the next shot, and that's where this art of caddying is, and also where you get all the hilarious stories. Is is that where for caddying is? Do you think it tends to be reining them in as opposed to getting them to go for it? Uh, would you say, in your experience, I'll, I'll guess Gus here. Um, I'm. I would have to say I'm a very aggressive caddy. Um, main, probably due to the fact that I've been working for a very aggressive player over the last three and a half years. And, you know, if we have, a say, a 240-meter carry over water and he knows he carries this three with 245 to 250 meters, so there's not much room for manoeuvre, but we'll go for it if the conditions are right. Because um, at the end of the day, that's what I think the best players in the world do. Um, is is go for it, kind of hammer and tong. Um, yeah. So I mean, sorry to butt in. I I, I kind of mean. Okay. I'd imagine you would agree that before a round to go for it on those kind of shots. But I, what I'm talking about are the kind of shots where you, as a caddy, know by whether the winds change or whatever it might be, you know, or you're very confident that this shot isn't on or this shot is on, and you're going against the player. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, there's obviously going to be disagreements and there's going to be times where you really want a player to hit a shot, but they might be super uncomfortable with it. So you need to find a, some middle ground there 
um, maybe on a shot that that he feels comfortable playing and that you think um, is going to be, you know, either damage limitation or give yourself the best look at a birdie or something like that. Is that? No, yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of what I mean. I I, I always just got it in my head that players want to take on everything, uh, which probably does work, but they might take on a shot that they literally haven't got in the locker. Um, and the cat, the caddy's job is to kind of talk them down from it. Maybe I'm wrong, Ollie. No, oh, sorry. No. Yeah, no, you're right. No, um, no, that's not always the case. Um, the, I, I find a lot of the time it's us trying to talk uh, talk a player into a shot. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, look, there's instances. You know, there's obviously instances where a player thinks he can get the ball out of a certain lie in the rough and get it to the green or get it there, and we're thinking in our heads, well, if you're hacking this out and you leave yourself a 40-yard pitch to a tux flag, you're in no man's land there. But if you think you can get it front edge, you've actually got a put. Whereas, you know, the, that's where I would say we would pull a player back is go, well, let's leave yourself a nice number. You practice 70, 80-yard pitches all the time. Let's give yourself that chance. You can get up and down from there. But if you leave yourself in that 40 zone... You know, 40, 50, some players are uncomfortable with that. You might get tight lies. The greens might be firm. You don't want to leave that kind of shot. So you and your player have discussed beforehand exactly what numbers they liked, where they like to pitch from. And that's what they consistently practice so that you've got what you call your layup numbers. So we know where we can lay a player up to. And nine times out of 10, they're getting up and down. Now, the converse part of that is that, like I talked about with Alex, when I worked for him for two years, he was... For, sorry, for two years that I worked for him, he was the best iron player in the world across both tours. So as long as we were in play and as long as that the guy was on the fairway or in the semi-rough, almost every single flag was a green, what you call a green light. He could go for everything. And he was that good at the time that it didn't, I'd never really had to try and coerce him into a shot where I've seen players, obviously we're in groups with the other guys all the time. I've seen players with a wedge in their hand, aim away from a flag. And it's, you know, you're asking yourself, well, why, what is this? Why is that? Why aren't you you going for it? And that's just, again, Gus says it's comfort levels in a certain way. Yeah. I, one thing that strikes me there is, and I didn't, I know, Ollie, you like to come out with ballsy statements, but you said, oh, Alex was um, the best iron player in the world across both tours for two years, which is, which to a lot of people outside golf, they would, uh, they would go, all oh, right, what? Um, whereas you guys literally playing with these guys, watching these guys week in, week out, I guess see parts of players' games that are just like super good and maybe un- underappreciated outside of the tour kind of bubble, I guess. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So, I mean, Alex was never a long player, and obviously still isn't. He's a great putter, and his iron play has always been one of his strong points. And it was at the end of the second year of work for him. I think he finished 19th on the race to Dubai. He won. We played the majors, the WGCs. So we were able to gather a lot of data from America from their shot link system, which is where the Americans get their stats. And that's what you'll see on the PGA Tour app. And then in Europe, we have a very similar thing. But us caddies fill it out. So we've got a little stats card. And then that data gets processed for the European Tour. And now the European Tour have got guys walking around like the shot link do. So we know the stats for all the players. And we get regular updates if the players subscribe to these services and um, I remember getting the end of year stats through from Duncan uh, from Duncan um, Alex's manager and where I was reading through all the data thinking right you know then the team sit down what can he work on what can he work on next year to get better and the iron player I knew he was a great player 
uh, great iron player, but then to find out that he was top of the league in this aspect ahead of Woods and Johnson was just outrageous. And I was like, wow, that's really incredible. And you, you, you look back and you think, well, actually, the year he's just had and the amount of times that he's knocking it stiff, it was absolutely true. And you're right, we get an idea of whose games are better in what areas. And, you know, like Brett Rumford's known for his short game, but there's a few players out there that could probably rival Brett that aren't as, say, famous. And that's where that's where our insight kind of comes in there. Right. So this is me being a fanboy now, and I want kind of both your takes on this. I, I don't want to hear about, oh, maybe I want to hear about Tiger Woods or whatever, but I want to hear about the guys on tour in each aspect, maybe, you don't have to go through them all, but ones that really stand out where you got, like, where you think almost underrated to the whole wide world or just to the regular golfer down the thing of people that like Bjork, who's, who rips his irons or other players. I don't know, Gus, if you have anyone that springs to mind, you played, maybe you played with them recently or you noticed and you thought, geez. Um, I mean, the, the standout player for me on the tour just now or one that I certainly think has got a big career ahead of him is uh, Adrian Naus, um Spanish guy uh, he hasn't won yet but I think he's, it was his rookie year last year and he had a really good one um, just hits it unbelievably far um, and I think like like Ollie's man Nikolai right now, if you can have someone who can both hit it far and then have that feel and, and touch around the greens, which I believe Adri does, um, then then yeah, you've got a serious player on your hands. So I'd have to say um, he's standing out for me at the moment. And obviously um, the two young Danes, Nikolai and, and Rasmus Hogard, uh, look something very special um, in all aspects of the game, on and off the golf course. I've heard their, their knowledge of the game and, and understanding of the game is just incredible for for guys so young. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to seeing how those guys progress over the next uh, however many years it is. Ollie? Yeah. Um, not to talk about players themselves, but if you talk about break down the aspects of the game, I mean, we were talking about this through the week in Qatar, weren't we, Gus? Like, one of the most underrated putters in the world is George Kutsaya. Mm. Um, you know, because you were talking about what aspects of game were really underrated yeah. that the people at home haven't really picked up on maybe before you would you say Gus George is probably one of the most underrated putters in the world we all know we all consider him to be one of the best yeah I would think he is I mean there. from you know I, I don't think he ever misses putts from six feet like he's from holding out wise is incredible and I think all over the green is, is pretty special so George is mm. definitely one of the best putters on the tour for sure statistically I think he would be as well yeah he would be up there yeah I, I, I know you, I remember you telling me, Ollie, that, and I guess people do know this, but you said you played with Reed, didn't you? And his irons were just ridiculous. Patrick Reed, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, you know, it was really nice there. We played that course at the end of the season in Dubai, and there's a lot of um, like crosswind shots on that course. So the, you, know, you play your traditional links courses in England, your club course, and the wind will blow one way and come back England? the other. So you play in England, yeah, you play. <laughs> downwind and an interwind and um and Dubai's crosswinds and the, the ability for this guy who's obviously a world-class player to hold his shots against the wind or use the wind and it was just effortless and when you talk about Patrick Reed you never really talk about his quality iron play 
he's always just like been a consistent player all round. But that's what really stood out with me there. Um, if you talk about a player on a world stage and talking about a player on a world stage, it's easy. I've started working with this Nikolai and he asked me, you know, who was the most impressive player you played with? And I said, McElroy. And, uh, and he was like, oh, yeah, his driving's amazing. I says, well, yeah, it is. But actually, for me, his most impressive part was his short-range pitching because he's hitting his driver, like Gus has just said, into places that not much of the field can hit it to. But then he's then taking advantage of that because he's worked so hard on that pitching part of his game. You know, like so he can almost drive a few par fours each week. So he's driving it to 60 short of the green, but then he works so hard on that aspect of his game. And there's there's a lot of players that come out who can hit it as far as Rory and, you know, even maybe further that then can do that, but then don't have the ability to then hit a wedge in to six foot and hold the putt every time. And that's what Rory's done. And that's what I what stood out with me there, which is an interesting point, because it's probably a point that gets left off a lot of television broadcasts is how good these guys are down the bottom end of the game. Yeah, I, I, it, um, it's interesting to hear about the stuff you don't see on TV, basically. Like when you're talking about reshaping shots like effortlessly into the wind, that's something you see because you're stood right there watching it, right? Whereas you can't really pick that up as well on the TV. And, and you're feeling it with the wind as well, I guess. Yeah, I mean, a shot trace has been a big thing, hasn't it? So now most guys at home watching TV, you can see the line of the ball takeoff. Um, but. I mean, that's really helped, but still, you don't get an appreciation for the strength of the wind, how cold or warm the wind is, and how easy it is just to, just to get on the wrong side of the wind. I mean, we've all hit golf shots when we play that you just seem to get on the wrong side of it, and the ball just goes the exact place, the exact opposite place of what you're trying to do. But these guys are consistently just on point and able to move the ball and get the ball to help with the wind. It's uh, that, That, for me, is the most impressive part about caddying being inside think, the rope, being able to watch these guys use the conditions as you would do on Tiger Woods' computer game, you know? Yeah, I was going to say to Gush, you must have seen it where someone you're caddying for is just playing perfect golf almost, and you can just kind of sit back and almost go, what is going on here? How good is this kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I see it almost every year when we play the, the Dunhill because for some reason um, my, my player just, just loves their... Uh, loves playing the Lynx golf, loves playing, you know, Sicily was a really windy week. Um, he's had a lot of good results in, in wind. So myself, I've seen he's an extremely good um, ball striker. So controlling flight, um, you know, he could hit if the pin's 140, um, you know, he's got five different clubs in the bag that, that has got a chance of, of hitting close. Um, so, yeah, it's... It's really nice to watch someone in, in full control of their game. Like we had a, a round at King's Barnes last year at the Dunhill. Um, we ended up finishing third in the tournament, but he shot um, 10 under at King's Barnes uh, on the Friday. Uh, and, you know, it could have been better. And if you're coming off uh, after shooting 10 under par and saying, oh, you know, it couldn't have been any worse than that. And it, it could have probably been two or three better. Then, you know, you've watched some pretty special golf. Um, and it, it's just nice to be a part of, you know, I, I, I would have to say, I think everyone would agree that the better your player is playing, the easier it is to caddy for them. Because if, yeah. you know, we all have, we've all done um, work in practice and, and lead ups to tournaments in um, getting all our numbers right um, on the track, man, uh, 
doing putting, all this sort of stuff. So if they're playing well and hitting those numbers, hitting those shots that you've been practicing, then everything's there for everything's in place um, for for it being pretty simple to caddy for them, you know. Yeah, basically you're just you're you're a front row seat for like world class athletes, aren't you? Um, what I was going to ask, you, you mentioned how caddying was kind of not easy. Well, you, you, I think you said it was easy when it's going well. So if you flip that on its head, because everyone out there has played golf and knows how hard golf can be. And I think that goes for professional golfers as well, especially when their standards are so high. I guess yeah. my question, I, I, I'll go with Ollie, would be like, when it's not going well or something's just consistently wrong how hard is that and what what do you have to do as a caddy to kind of work through that well there's then probably break this down into two aspects there so you've got on course and off course so you can have a player who's struggling with a particular aspect of his game let's say it's his driver um and i've had this with uh with players before that have hitting the driver off the planet so Yes, you can practice as much of it as you want on the golf course, but that player might not be confident enough to take that onto the, uh, sorry, on the range. The player might not be confident enough to take it onto the golf course. So, whilst they might stand up on the first tee and give it a go, you know, if it doesn't go well after that first one, you need a contingency plan in there. So, in your head, you know, on the bus to work, let's say, you've already thought of options here, you know, plan B's, plan C's, and even plan bloody D's. You might be able to convince your player that go hang on a minute I know this is a par five but let's not hit driver off the tee let's just get a three wood in play and you can still go for it in two and the amount of times that you'll 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 see and hear caddies on the course you know who are working for a player that's not going through the best of times at the moment and just needs to try and make a cut to try and generate a little bit of confidence over time and you'll hear them go well if you get an iron off this tee you can still have a nice club into into the uh, into the pin so I'd say that's where it gets hard when you're having to try and go against what's the natural grain is. And I spoke about that with Alex with his mentality before, is that if you've got a guy that likes to be full steam ahead and you're trying to go, well, hang on a minute, let's just start again, get the ball in play, go back to basics. It's almost like when you watch football and they bring you bring a seasoned manager in to stop a team from getting relegated. Well, they end up just playing 4-4-2, keeping it simple, don't they? And it's the same for us caddies, just to try and get these guys back on the fairway. And then a couple of good golf shots, all of a sudden they're on a birdie run. Yeah, so that, that, that's kind of it. that's kind of interesting. What what strikes me as well, because I've, I've kind of talked to players a little bit about this, but because I guess you 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 guys would socialise more, how and because golf is kind of a streaky sport, right? Where golfers can play well for four weeks and then kind of play poorly for four weeks. I guess as caddies, you kind of have to keep kind of a level mood if possible and not let it affect you too much. It, for example, if you two went for a beer on a Monday and uh, Joachim shot 63 and um, Nikolai shot 83. You've got to kind of just kind of stay level, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's not like we come off the golf course have, after having a good day and um, expect to have huge plaudits. Like, don't get me wrong, people say well done, but especially on a Monday or on a Thursday or whatever, um, you know that there's a lot of golf left, so you'd like to rather take the plaudits on on the Sunday, and then before that, you know, just keep a. It's it's just like when you're working, you know, you'll discuss the round, you'll you'll um, discuss the issues your man's having or someone he's doing really well, 
Um, but yeah, generally, I, I wouldn't say we're we're too keen on bragging because I think we know it can come around and, and bite you in the ass pretty quickly in this golf game. Yeah, and uh, and I guess the um, yeah, I guess on a Sunday is I, I I guess you've just got to be mindful of of your kind of mates around you, and and I guess it all does fall down to money as well. And mindful of your mates around you that if you're kind of doing really well for a few weeks and someone else isn't just to be mindful of that right Ollie? Yeah absolutely we all go through peaks and troughs in this game and when you speak you know we're quite lucky our little group of uh, youngsters as we'll call we're all still rookies um, we hang around quite nicely with some of the older guys and they're always telling us about the peaks and troughs and it's a roller coaster and you'll have two or three amazing years and then you'll have five or six years in the doldrums and um I think once you've experienced the highs and lows of that, you get you really get a good respect for uh, for how to not behave, but how to how to act around others, especially if you're doing well and you know your roommate who you consistently room with is going through a tough time with his player. And as again, that's kind of why we all stick together and why we bring it back to the um, the sponsorship thing. If we can deliver everyone just a little bit of money to, uh, to kind of cap the bottom end of the of the caddy in life, then it just makes life a little bit easier. You mentioned, you mentioned kind of the older boys. You, I heard you call them the elders earlier, like they're some kind of spiritual group, which you might say they are. Um, but who, who would you say is kind of the ones that's, uh, that's either come to you as when you first started or giving you great advice? Or who are the guys that have, have done that, Gus? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of guys. Um, when, I, when I started, um, it's not quite like it was like it is nowadays sorry there's a lot more guys around my age or younger now I think when I started I was 25 and I was just about the youngest on tour so for the older guys to accept me into um the group was was really important for me and you know guys like Ken Herring um the Tilston twins uh stretch um you know I'm, I'm forgetting forgetting loads of guys uh, Dom um Billy Foster you know, all these guys were absolutely brilliant with me. Um, kind He's of, been there and done it, guys, as well, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I'm. I think between them, between five guys I've I've named there, there's probably almost two hundred years of of caddy experience and and uh, into triple figures of wins. Uh, so it was it was great for them to a um, give me some respect and and you know after they found out a little bit about me, um, knowing that I was out here. You know, I wasn't just out here for a jolly. I'm out here trying to make a career of it like they have. Uh, they they were great to me, and any advice I ever needed, um, they were they were happy to share it over a pint with me. So it was, uh, yeah. That's the key thing, isn't it? Over a pint, and I imagine you were the one buying it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd say I was. <laughs> what about you, Ollie? Um, you can throw the same names in the hat there again and probably go with um, a guy called Richie Hill. Um, he worked for Ollie yeah, Wilson for a long time when Richie was in, when Ollie Wilson was in the Ryder Cup. Um, Jan, the queen of caddying. Um, yeah, she's looked after, well, she looks after everybody to her work in the association, but um, I got really close to Jan when I was working for Terry in Asia. She was working for Jeep Milka Singh, so we just used to knock about a lot out there and she taught us a lot. Um, and you can go into people like Mick Doran, 
uh, legend, 47 wins, Damo. But the minute you get into these circles, and we're, we're leaving names out of this, which we don't mean to do, sorry, guys and girls, but once you get into the, you know, once you're accepted into the fraternity, essentially, when, as Gus says, once you prove to these guys that you're here for a long time, because they've had a lot over the years, you get a lot of guys that come out for a few weeks and disappear and come back, and, you know, they're not giving it a true crack. And these people who come out for a little bit of time and don't stick at it or don't see it through and are shown that you're not willing to learn. Um, I think that's where it gets difficult for you to try and stay out here because, you know, the, the big fraternity, if you will, of us travelling caddies is that we're all in it together and all trying to help each other. And, uh, you know, if you're forthcoming like me and Gus are and you go and ask questions, ask piece of advice, and these guys and girls are always willing to to share their wisdom with you. And as you said, the minute you get four, five, six of them sat together, you've got hundreds of years worth of experience and uh, probably hundreds of wins as well. And and I imagine hundreds of uh, stories as well over a beer um, of an evening, some of which we, one, we'll probably want to get them straight from the horse's mouth. But what are the things that they kind of say... Uh, has changed in Caddy Inc? What's the big changes that they would say, or even that you've seen in your short time? What, but what, I guess it's more from what they've seen from the 80s or 90s or whatever till now. Um, to be honest, it's probably the technology and then the type of person that the pros are now. Obviously, you've got things like TrackMan and, um, and you know, flight scopes and things like that. And these things that changing how golf pros go about their work with all the nutrition and everything. So the old school days where players and caddies would go out and drink doesn't really happen anymore. I mean, you still see players come out and you'll still see caddies, you know, having a few drinks after dinner or with dinner. But the old school days of, you know, where the caddies traditionally get their reputation from, that's diminishing very quickly. And I think they just say that the, as well with the players, they're a little bit more sensitive these days so they were they would they would say and again get it from the horse's mouth but they would say that the amount of times they used to give hair dry treatment out to their players to try and motivate them or to get them to concentrate a little bit better or you know to try and get their point across you can't do that in the modern age from what they're telling us because these you know the younger breed of player are a little bit more sensitive and need a little bit more uh, coercing round to try and prove prove the point yeah there's um... it might have changed a little Obviously, the the famous one uh, recently, and obviously, uh, is Edinburgh, Edinburgh Jimmy, who I've heard a thousand stories already since he unfortunately passed away very recently. But he was what someone who would certainly give the kind of hair dry treat. Well, not even that, just kind of sly quips, wasn't it? And he wouldn't really care who he, who he was telling him to. Yeah, absolutely not. He gave he gave uh, no f's, if you will. Um, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely zero. And he'd quite happily take the piss out of a player in front of all the other players to put them back in their place. And whilst the player might not appreciate that, um, I'm told that Paul McGinley gave an incredible speech at uh, at the um, at the funeral there. And Jan was telling me that he was just praising all the old school caddies for understanding what the players need and how the youngsters need to try and get this back to realise that the person stood next to you on the bag. Whilst he might be telling you the truth, he or she, and you might not like it, you need it. And it's because you don't like it is why you need it. And that's something that Paul said. Yeah, is there, Gus, is there something like, 
obviously similar. Is that something you've kind of noticed as well? Yeah, I mean, um, there's a there's a huge difference between now and then. I mean, I would say a huge thing for for the old school guys was just getting around back in the day. You know, they, they didn't have sky scanners. Um, they didn't have you know probably well they didn't have the easy jets the Ryanairs uh, that we have today so it was it was an expensive cost um you know obviously i think what i would say is in general um the older generation say it was a little bit bit more fun back in the day but as ollie says it's really become more of a business now and with there being so many caddies nowadays um then that that has made it you know you're a bit more worried that if you lose your job, where is the next job going to come from? Whereas back in the day, um, I've heard stories of guys sacking their boss or being sacked on a Thursday and, and picking up a new bag on the Friday. So that's that's kind of how um, things have changed. You know, for us, we get treated great as as caddies nowadays. The, the lounges that we have at golf courses, the the transport um, that we have to the golf course and then of course the money that we're playing for nowadays so uh, I respect the guys hugely for for doing it all the years um, when it was when it was definitely tougher than it is now so um, I have huge respect for for all these guys. I guess there's just I don't know if it's you mentioned like how competitive it is as a caddy I'm sure and I'm, it's the same as players right there's just a lot of guys trying to make it right and I guess that's as caddies as well so you're quite conscious of your job right would you say Ollie I know talking to you whilst you were um, with Alex you're kind of thinking right well not where's my next job coming from because you're obviously you're confident in your ability and and what you've done uh, but it's it's not contracted is it it's kind of precarious yeah it's very fluid is probably the best way to have it and you know I had three great years with Alex it came to an end last year it, decision was made by both of us he wasn't happy with the way things were working and I was wanting to try something new with someone else so you shake hands and move on leave it on very nice terms um, and I think that the ability to do that is a good positive thing but at the same time I mean we're all human you all have those doubts in your head um, if you've had a particularly bad day or you know a couple of results haven't gone your way then it's very easy for that player to send a text message and go I don't want you next week you're out and it happens, and it's happened to me. It'll happen to me again. It'll happen to every caddy that comes out. And I think what the general public don't get is that, you know, being sacked in this job is just normal. Um, I'd say, I mean, I'll get Gus to put his thoughts in in a second, but the average shelf life of a caddy and a player, I mean, it must be less than six months. Must be, because you, they're always trying to find the perfect partnership. And sometimes perfection isn't always there. Um but it, it's a very, it's, it is a bit of a conveyor belt until you find someone that you really gel with. And that, I think that whether, without having contracts, yeah, it can pose, you know, threats personally and financially, but it also creates the opportunity where you can take a job if you get offered one from, say, a better player or someone who you've always wanted to work for. And it's the intricacies of that that the people in the real world don't understand. Um, because people in the real world, when you hear the word sacking, it means failure. And for us, it's just part of our job because if you don't win every week, then you failure. And golf is about failure, how you manage your failures. And uh, I think Gus will probably shed light there on what he probably thinks the average shelf life of a caddy and a player is. 
Yeah, I'd have to say similar. Certainly, certainly under a year. Um, uh, yeah, I've, I certainly feel like I've been with Yoakum a long time now in, in the way I see Canadian going. Um, I guess that makes you okay and feel okay in your job because you see every week guys getting new jobs. So I, I'm like, don't get me wrong, I'm not particularly working every week thinking, oh, I better do a good job here. Um, or I'll be out of, of work for, for a long time. Um, but at the same time, what it also motivates you to do is to stand out in, in the crowd of all these caddies. So, uh, you know, you want to be looked at as, as not just a guy who's going to work for a, um, the same kind of player every year. You want to be looked at as someone who could progress through the game um, over the years. And, and that's really what we all want to do um, is, is make our way through up the ladder and uh, yeah, hopefully work for those top players. Right. Uh, before we f- finish, I'm going to put you on the spot here because I, I want to give back to uh, the people that listen to this. God knows how many people will or what have you, but I want to give back. Do you play in pro-ams every, pretty much every Wednesday, right? And you'll play with amateurs of varying abilities. I imagine you've got some stories of the abilities that you've played pro-ams with. Um, what, one kind of tip would you give to a regular player from a caddy perspective um, of what they should do? And maybe even if you should give an example of your player, a professional player, doing that as well, if that makes sense. I don't know if you want to jump in, who can go first, or if you've got an answer, ready to go. Um, yeah, I've, I've got one. So I would say nine out of ten amateurs think they hit the ball further than they do. Okay. Um, I don't know who's been telling them these numbers or if they're playing on Lynx courses all the time where the ball might go a little bit further on the ground, but nine times out of ten, short over long. So my advice would have to be um, either go and find out. Uh, you know, you can do all these... Um, launch monitor sessions now go and find out how you actually how far you actually hit your club so you do know or on the golf course just take an extra club because from what i've seen uh, and probably what i do myself uh, trying to hit it that little bit harder usually goes wrong so i would take an extra club and and hit it a little bit easier that would be my advice from what i've seen a difference between the launch monitor and actually playing golf especially in the uk as well Sorry, is there a difference? Yeah, as in the launch ma- monitor in indoor settings with, uh, you know, no wind or uh, yeah. no, it's cold. You know, we're in Britain, it's cold, it's damp. It's how much effect, sure. that once again, you, it's going less than you think, right? Yeah, we, we, have, to, we have to adjust that all the time. Um, trying to think of, a, you know, the desert, for example, when we play Dubai, etc., you're, you're teeing off early, you know, tea times are usually around 6.30, the first ones of the day, so the sun isn't really up yet. It's, uh, you know, it's quite quite cool. The ball won't be travelling as far. So what we need to do there is adjust for that, you know, and basically you are doing a little bit of guesswork at the start of the day to figure out how far the ball's going. And then as the day goes on, you need to adjust with how the temperature rises. So obviously the hotter it gets, the further the ball will go. And that's something the the amateur golfer needs to think about when he's teeing off at seven o'clock in the morning on a cold, you know, maybe frosty morning in the UK is that 
he's not going to be hit, hitting his seven iron 150 yards like he normally does. Um, so, so just take that extra club and, and always think about the, the conditions, certainly, because we certainly do um, on every shot. And do pros ever think that as well, quite briefly? Do pros think they hit it further than they actually do? I know they should know their numbers, but... Um, personally, my man's pretty uh, uh, pretty military in that, that he doesn't really um, go above his ability. Don't get me wrong, if, we're having, a bit of, if we're having a bit of fun or whatever, then, then we'll muck about, but... Um, we know what our maximums are, and we don't really try and. He he doesn't try and uh, bully the bully the golf ball, and I don't let him do it either. So. Fair enough, Ollie. Um, yeah, I would echo what Gus says there about the professionals. Is they're pretty military in what they know, and um, I'd say that an interesting point in practice rounds there is that um, the players I've worked for have always tried to get them to prove themselves right. Um, so if a player thinks he can't hit it over a certain bunker, you know, you look at a standard par four and you've got a bunker at 300 yards and it's going to play roughly downwind all week when you look at the forecast and the temperature is going to be X. You say to the player, do you think you can hit it over that bunker? And the answer probably will be no. Well, try and make the player prove itself because if you think in your head that today, that Tuesday afternoon practice round, the player can do it and he does it, you're giving him the confidence then that you realise what his abilities can stretch to. So it kind of gives uh, gives, a, gives a player the confidence there that we also know what their numbers and what their fluctuations are. And if you touch that back then to the amateur game, Gus has said it perfectly then. You know, most amateurs will stand there at 150 and think, I can hit an A-time 150. Well, you probably can in the middle of summer when it's dry. But I think what the players, what the professionals use and what the amateurs use is an amateur will probably use a finish point of the ball, whereas a player uses the pitch point of the ball. So if you're going to go and get yourself tested uh, for your distances or go to a launch monitor session, it's really important to understand you, you need your carry numbers because that's what's important. And then, you know, you have the intelligence yourself as an amateur golfer to understand, oh, it's firm today and it's warm. Um, that number, that pitch number is going to stay the same, maybe differentiate by a couple of yards each way with the heat. But... Because it's firmer, if it pitches 135 instead of going 136 because it's wet in winter or staying there, it will go another 10, 15 in the middle of June. So it's having that understanding of how far you pitch your clubs is what I would say is the biggest, uh, the biggest amateur failing. So I guess for me as an amateur, to guess I've got this through my head properly is what the pros will do on a Tuesday is almost test themselves to prove they can't get over that bunker because they know their numbers. So one amateur could do in practice is do the same and then go when they're actually playing in a medal or whatever because they know their numbers and they can take account of the atmospheric conditions, basically hit an extra club. Yeah, exactly. So you'll, you'll find times, we played in Qatar recently and there's a few holes there um, where, especially on the back nine, you didn't need a, a driver per se. So you're, sometimes you were hitting a two iron off a tee or a three wood or you know, a rescue or something. And when we're in the practice rounds, I said to, to Nikolai, well, you know, you can prove to yourself here that you can hit driver over that bunker. I know you don't want to do it right now and you feel like you won't do that in regulation tournament play, but you know, under the under pressure, under the pump, if you need to make a move or if you need, or if you're feeling confident because you're hitting it really well that day, we all go through days like that, 
you know you can actually hit driver over that bunker. And we also know that you can always hit three iron to the middle of the fairway. That's the stock shot, and these guys have got that. So to translate back to that to the amateur game, like you said, when you're just playing with your mates or you're playing on your own, you know, try different clubs off different tees. You know most of the time where your limits are, but you also know that you can try and push those limits given the right temperatures, given the right conditions. Wicked. I reckon that's a good place to end. People can listen to that. They probably can't take... I'm not even sure if golf courses are even open. I don't think they are in Belgium. Is that right, uh, Gus? Gus lives in Brussels. Uh, No, they are shut at the moment. I think over here they are open at the moment, but we don't know how long for. So get out on the course if you're in the UK and uh, get your numbers. Or get in a launch monitor, but then you probably can't even speak to anyone to do that. God knows. Just listen to this podcast when this is all finished. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, thanks, boys, for uh, thanks, boys, for coming on. Hopefully, you enjoyed it, and you'll be hearing a lot more from these two boys. So, follow the Tour Caddies at the Tour Caddies on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. You'll see a lot more from Gus and Ollie. You'll hear a lot more when hopefully they get a job back out on tour, and. These guys will be hosting it and telling you all the stuff that's going on at the tournament, when it's happened, who's played well, who's caddied well, who's caddied badly, and who's not buying the beers. So from from now, I'll say thanks, boys. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Cheers, and we'll see you soon. Talk to me, Joey. Still me, Art. Great job. All right.